I think that, you know, the whole point of the exercise yeah. is to get the students to see that there's this whole a whole bunch of stuff that we take for granted mm. that doesn't quite fit the scientific materialist worldview. Mm. So the other, the easier, sometimes the easier examples are moral examples. Like if I say it's wrong to torture children for fun, and I said, how many of you think that's a correct statement? <laughs> and you know, everybody raises their hand, right? right. Well, how do you prove that? Have you, okay. Right? I mean, I have to ask, have you ever had a smart Alex student? Have you ever had I, I've, Oh, I've had, I've had many. So, so that you so, <laughs> Well, about 25 years ago, yeah. I had a student in class who, who asked me why I thought that she, she said, why is the truth important? And I asked her, do you want the true answer or the false one? <laughs> and so, you know, there's a, and that was the point of that yeah. was to say that sometimes the answer isn't the result of an argument. It's actually the starting point of an argument. Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Francis J. Beckwith. Uh, he is a philosopher who publishes and teaches in the areas of religion, jurisprudence, politics, and ethics. He's the professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University, where he also serves as associate director of the graduate program in philosophy and affiliate professor of political science. Uh, Dr. Beckwith, wonderful to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, so today we are going to talk about how religious beliefs should be properly used in the public square, especially in the arenas of uh, legal and judicial purposes. And that's working off your book, um, Taking Rights Seriously, which, uh, fair warning, uh, is really good, but also uh, very heavy. So it is like, it's, a, it's not line by line argumentation, but I'd say it's paragraph by paragraph. And I think you do a really good job of walking through that's, you know, for our listeners, but walking through and just making your points clearly and definitively. So uh, how did you get interested in this topic to begin with? Well, it's a, it's a long story. I began being interested in legal questions concerning religion right after graduate school. So I did my doctorate at Fordham University in New York City late 80s, graduated in 1989, and I had done most of my work in law school, not law school, graduate school, uh, in the area of philosophy of religion. Mm. Uh, my doctorate dissertation was on David Hume's argument against miracles. I had an interest in faith and reason questions uh, from the very early days of my time in school, uh, when I was in elementary school, I was always asking questions about God and morality. These, you know, I was a kind of annoying kid in <laughs> Catholic school. And, uh, and so, but, but it, it sort of gravitated to that academically. Well, right after graduating from Fordham, I was hired at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I grew up. I grew mm. up in Vegas. And so it was great to be back home, to be able to teach at, at the local university. And the chairman of the philosophy department asked if I'd begin teaching courses in political and legal philosophy mm. and ethics. I had some interest in that, but not a lot. And so I began teaching in that area. And that uh, I began con 
encountering, especially on controversial questions, uh, what I thought were uh, deficits in the way in which people assessed the claims of religious citizens. Mm. Uh, and so that led me to think about issues that sort of the big, especially the abortion question. That mm. was the first one that I began uh, thinking about, uh, published some early work in that area in academic journals. And then in the late 90s, um, decided to go to law school. Uh, and I went to Washington University in St. Louis. And in those days, they had a degree program, a graduate degree program in law called a Master of Juridical Studies. Mm. And it was no longer offered anymore, uh, but it was a special degree for people that were scholars in other fields that were interested in the law, but didn't want to practice. What a cool idea. So I went to, yeah, it was a, so I went to Wash U, took virtually all the first year law courses that everyone takes and then some electives. And I had to write a dissertation as part of the degree, which is not what typical law students do. And it was on the debate about teaching intelligent design in public schools. Mm. And it was a topic that interested me because it kind of dovetailed all my interests. There was philosophy of religion, constitutional law, philosophy of science, uh, you know, politics and religion. And the issue kind of had all of these in one. And so I published this book uh, as a result of the dissertation called uh, Law Darwinism in Public Education. And I parceled out portions of the dissertation as law review articles. Mm. And it was soon after that that I was hired by Baylor to be the associate director of their Church State Studies Institute. And then a couple of years after that, moved to the philosophy department, which is my more natural discipline. Yeah. So that that's that would kind of, that's, those are the things that kind of drew me to these questions. And um, and as I say in taking right seriously, uh, I've kind of changed my mind about a few things. Mm. So uh, when I first began having an interest in the intelligent design debate, I would say that I was very sympathetic to intelligent design as a view. Uh, I've kind of drifted away from that. I, I don't I don't agree with the view mm -hmm. anymore. I, I thought that I really ever agreed with it, but I just thought it was one of those tantalizing uh, theories that kind of broke the mold. And so it was mostly defended by people that were overtly religious, mm -hmm. but it was a view that was defended by secular reasons. So it was kind of, it didn't kind of fit uh, you know, the, the idea of, of, you know, advancing religious views. Mm -hmm. uh, but over the years, as I began thinking about the intelligent design as a view itself, I became more skeptical about it. Mm. And so in, in taking right seriously, I have a whole chapter explaining why I've grown more negative about, about the view as a view. That's different from the legal question. Right. And I right. make that distinction in the, in the book. Yeah. Uh, so, couple of questions that come out uh, of that. Uh, first one, can you tell me a little bit more about the Church State in Institute? What is that? Oh, okay. So Baylor started back, way back in the 1950s, uh, the Church State Studies Institute. It was eventually named after one of its most famous alum, alumnus, alumni, Joseph Martin Dawson or J.M. Dawson. And so it was called the J.M. Dawson Institute of Church State Studies. Hmm. It started originally as a kind of think tank, a place where professors at the university who teach in other departments 
can sort of publish their works, maybe uh, sponsor conferences and, and, and things of that sort. And then eventually, in I think in the 60s and 70s, maybe in the 70s, I'm not a historian of the Institute. Right, but, right. Uh, there was a master's degree program offered. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, they began offering a doctoral program. And the Institute still exists, but about seven, eight years ago, maybe mm -hmm. 10 years ago, they, the university decided to end the degree programs, uh, part, mostly because Baylor began offering doctoral programs uh, in political science, uh, philosophy, uh, sociology. And so what eventually happened is a lot of those students that would have applied to the Church State Study Institute began for strategic career reasons to gravitate towards the more conventional disciplines. And so uh, I moved to philosophy, uh, which is a better fit for me, yeah. uh, given my own interests. But uh, so that's uh, the story of, of the Institute. It still exists. It still publishes uh, the Journal of Church-State Studies, which is a very important journal in the area of law and religion. Yeah, that's uh, really fascinating. Sorry, it was just I didn't have any categories for how that fits, so that definitely stuck out to me. Um, so, just starting kind of uh, in that introductory uh, chapter for our listeners, can you talk through your critique of scientific materialism and that, how that affects our perception of religious knowledge and beliefs? Yeah. So imagine. Um, uh, actually, I'll tell the story. Sure. I, 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 uh, the beginning of the book, I tell the story of, of speaking at Texas Tech University. I was invited by the law school to actually talk about my book on Darwinism and public education. And uh, the purpose of the talk was to simply talk about the legal questions. And there was a gentleman in the audience who raised his hand at the end, and he said, all you've given us are religious arguments, which technically wasn't true. I was actually giving legal arguments, but he was from one of the science departments, and he rightfully, I think, was skeptical of some of the, the arguments for intelligent design. So I, you know, I don't disagree with, with that. Um, but I immediately answered uh, and said, actually paused for a moment and collected my thoughts, and I said, oh, I, 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 I thought you were going to make, I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments right <laughs> you know i'm relieved i thought you were gonna... and and so there was a moment there was actually a moment where i realized that in many ways the way in which people deal with arguments that are sort of motivated by religion is to sort of categorize them as sort of outside the realm of reason yeah and and so and the audience laughed and we actually wound up talking for quite a while afterwards. Yeah. He was there with some friends and, you know, he said, well, what did you mean by that? I said, well, look, arguments are either sound or unsound. Labeling them religious in and of itself doesn't tell you about the quality of the argument. Right. And so there was a kind of smuggling in of this idea that the only arguments that are, or, or points of view that are legitimate are those that can be tightly tethered to a kind of scientific materialism. And what I was suggesting was that you don't get to win that easy. Right, you right. Know, by just simply 
simply redefining what counts as legitimate discourse. Uh, having said that, though, I mean, clearly I have a burden as well, right? I mean, I have to show that, in fact, uh, if I hold to views that challenge his, I obviously have some obligation to give him reasons why I hold the views that I do. Yeah. But I don't think this way of thinking on his part, you know, does um, adequate, it doesn't adequately account for uh, why people hold views that may very well seem kind of weird or odd, mm. uh, given the dominance of a kind of scientific materialism in the academy. They should be taken at the value of their judgments, not how, just how they're characterized. Um. Yes. So, you know, an example I, I, I've used um, in class, and it, it, it's one that, um, you know, I, I don't think it proves my position, but it, it shows why people, uh, at least philosophers, are sort of interested in these questions. So I asked my students, um, what is mathematics? You know, what is it? I mean, when we talk about things like, let's say, computers and lamps and dogs and cats, mm. we can sort of talk about what are these things, right? And we can talk about artifacts and natural objects and organisms. But abstract objects are really difficult <laughs> to figure out what they are, yeah. right? I mean, in a sense, they're, they're, they're not anywhere. And yet, in some sense, they're more real. Mm. Right. So if I say, um, uh, let's say circumference equals two pi radius, right? Or uh, the I know what triangularity is. Uh, it's really not. I mean, I I can't really find in the physical world a perfect triangle. Right. Right. And yet I kind of know what it is. So if the physical world ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. Would it still be necessarily true that circumference equals two pi radius? Yeah, and it's right? just and, always and universally true. And on the other side, yeah. you know, we we want to say these things that we hold and that we see, like lamps and stuff like that, are more are more real, right? And your your what you said was that yeah. the abstract might be more real. But you look at something like a mug, and if you have a big deep mug, sometimes it turns into a bowl. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, wait, what is this yeah. thing? And I think I know what it is. And then, but you can't argue two plus two equals four, right? Like yeah. you can't. But anyways. That, that, that's right. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the whole point of the exercise yeah. is to get the students to see that there's this whole, a whole bunch of stuff that we take for granted mm. that doesn't quite fit the scientific materialist worldview. Mm. So the other, the easier, sometimes the easier examples are moral examples. Like if I say, it's wrong to torture children for fun. And I said, how many of you think that's a correct statement? It's wrong. And you know, everybody raises their hand, right? right. Well, how do you prove that? Have you, okay, right? I, mean, I have to ask, have you ever had a smart Alex student? Have you ever had I, I've, oh, I've had, I've had many. So, so that you've so, had <laughs> Well, about 25 years ago, yeah. I had a student in class who, who asked me why I thought that, she, she said, why is the truth important? And I asked her, do you want the true answer or the false one? And so, you know, there's a, and that was the point of that yeah. was to say that sometimes the answer isn't the result of an argument. It's actually the starting point of an argument. Mm. That is, it's something you presuppose yeah. 
and you sort of can't live without. Like torturing children for fun, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... The way I just said that, after you said things you can't live without, didn't quite fit. Let me play to that. Not torturing children for fun is something that I, like, yeah, that I have to have that as a fundamental. Yeah, and so I do think these are, I mean, these are the sorts of things that animated, uh, that animate people have animated people for generations, right? Mm. Why, why people become philosophy majors, right? Uh, or why is it that, uh, you know, Plato and Aristotle were, you know, kind of dumbfounded by what seems to be things that we know that just aren't directly accessible through our senses, mm. right? So a question I asked, actually asked my students yesterday in class, we were, we were just uh, going over... We had just completed uh, a discussion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail where he makes a case for civil disobedience. And I asked my students, what do you think is, is more important, um, the physical world or, the, non, or what, the non-physical? And they automatically go to the physical world. And I said, okay, would you rather have your arm broken or your heart? And nobody picked the heart. They all picked they'd rather have their arm broken. And so I said, doesn't that show you that there is, you know, uh, something about you as a human being Mm. that is far more important than, you know, what is physically apparent? It's not doesn't mean that the physical world is unimportant. Clearly, it is. And we have to live and survive and eat and drink and, and so forth. But but there is something about us. And King recognizes this when he talks about laws that undermine human personality. Mm. Right. He's just not he doesn't think that the way the success of the civil rights movement is contingent upon African-American citizens just uh, having their physical needs met. It's it's part. It's also what needs to be addressed is how they're treated as fellow citizens. Mm. Right. The dignity and respect that they're entitled to. And so this is why, you know, I raised this question point in class is that. Going to work is not just merely about doing something to make money. It's also having a kind of fulfillment. So, uh, yeah, obviously it is about, uh, you know, people do work for, for, to help, you know, provide for themselves and their families. But there's also this sense of, of inner fulfillment that is more than just getting that financial reward. Right. Right. And, and so there's... There's more to us than just, you know, meeting our physical needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and there are different conceptions of what that might be. And we have to figure out a way to find common ground. But, but uh, you know, I, I think that's really a big part of what I, uh, my own philosophical study. I got a master's in philosophy of religion uh, from Trinity uh, in Chicago. But the. Oh, yeah. the Deerfield. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I taught for Trinity in the 90s. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Yeah, the Southern California campus, and I used to fly. I one semester, I I don't know, you probably before your time, there was a, a professor named Paul Feinberg. Yes, who uh, he had retired. He retired. He passed away. I think about a decade ago. But Paul was on research leave, and so I flew in. They had me fly in every Monday night, <laughs> and I taught every other. Uh, I go drive to LAX, fly into Chicago on a red eye. Uh, 
take a sleep for like six or seven hours and teach in the afternoon. I, I, I'm tired just like, hearing it. Yeah, no, that's so, crazy. So I was a lot younger then yeah. and I could do that. And I, ta- I, ta- I taught a graduate seminar in modern philosophy. Oh, that's awesome. So we went, we went from, uh, I think, Descartes through Kant. Yeah. Uh, so that was my, yeah. So I, but I, I, you know, I was a faculty member there, but I lived in California and did most of my teaching there at the extension campus. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I, uh, I actually, uh, studied under, um, uh, John Feinberg, uh, cause he was, I know the, John, yeah. yeah. Um, and Harold, Harold Netland too. Yes. He? Yeah. Yeah. I took classes with him and then with, uh, Dr. Yandel who, uh, oh, yeah. okay. but, uh, so Anyways, like my, my study was in uh, hermeneutics and uh, really a lot of what I've focused on um, is how surprising it is to me um, to find truth in different places and in different ways of knowing, different modes of knowing. Uh, so I, I found that those parts especially um, interesting to me when you're talking about like religion uh, as a source of knowledge, right? Uh, for mm-hmm. me, that's... Uh, largely been focused on art but also recognizing uh that sort of thing um do you see uh uh what is the value of religion as a source of knowledge how would you what do you think is the appropriate way to uh appropriate that for just uh as a not at a knowledge level and then obviously you know all all throughout we're talking about how we take that knowledge and, and use it in the common way yeah, that's a very big question. Yes, I, mean, there obvi- there, I mean, there's there's lots of, there's lots of religions, uh, and uh, there are a lot of faith traditions. So, you know, I I think that I mean the way that I tr- that think I've I've changed on on this question to a certain extent. When I was in my early twenties, uh, late twenties, I was deeply influenced by a way of thinking about faith and reason that had. Uh, been connected to a evangelical theologian named John Warwick Montgomery. I don't know if you know, have heard of Montgomery. I've, Montgomery I've, was actually a, a, go ahead. Montgomery was a professor of mine, and uh, he had this very kind of empirically oriented way of looking at Christian faith. He would say, you know, so so the kind of scientific materialists would say, you know, you need to prove everything through, you know. Uh, scientific and historical arguments, and and Montgomery would say, "Well, we can do that." Yes, right. And so his answer to that wasn't to challenge the assumptions of scientific materialism, but to simply say, "We can meet that challenge." And this was something that was part of, kind of, you think of, of early American, uh, kind of e- evangelical. Um, thinking was deeply influenced by a Scottish common sense philosophy, Mm -hmm. Thomas Reed and others, which was kind of the way that most early Americans thought uh, going all the way back to American founding. And so if you go back and read people like say B.B. Warfield and J. Gratian Machen and these guys, they tend to accept that way of looking at things. Now, Montgomery is a kind of extreme example. He just, you know, basically, uh, didn't wasn't at all sympathetic to pietism or or he would call pietism but ironically Montgomery was also very much drawn to people like Tolkien and and Lewis and and fiction writers mm. and I always wondered whether that was kind of his way of 
uh, expressing that part of us, that artistic part of us that can't be cabined by right. that, that, that rationalism. So, but as I've gotten, as I've gotten older and, and my reading has, has expanded, I, I was, became more and more influenced by certain Catholic thinkers. Mm. In fact, wind up returning to the Catholic church. I'd grown up Catholic, left, and then returned uh, 15 years ago. Uh, the work of Thomas Aquinas mm. uh, influenced me. And one of the things Aquinas talks about is what we can know as a consequence of our reason uh, about God and what we can know only as a result of special revelation. So uh, we can know certain things, says Aquinas, uh, uh, in terms of, here I'm talking within the Christian tradition. Sure. I, I will say a few things about um, you know, mystical experience, uh, which can be had, obviously, by people of, of different religious traditions. Mm. Uh, but what Aquinas says is that, uh, that you know, very few people can sort of come up with uh, and evaluate arguments for God's existence. Uh, but most people just come to believe these things uh, because they just seem to be right. And... Uh, that's not irrational. Mm. Uh, that's just the way in which human beings respond to the world that's out there. And uh, the kinds of things that I think, uh, uh, you know, I don't think Aquinas would use this illustration, obviously, but uh, supposing you are visiting the Grand Canyon and you look at the majestic beauty of the Grand Canyon and you just have a sense of the presence of God. Uh, to me, that is a perfectly human way to respond to beauty, mm. right? There's something transcendent about that. They can't be reducible to, let's say, the, a geologist's analysis of the Grand Canyon. You know, imagine you walked into the Louvre and you, for the first time you saw in person uh, the Mona Lisa, which I, I did see, 21 years ago when my wife and I were in Paris. And I was actually overwhelmed by it. Mm. And I'm not an art guy. And so I just was sort of blown away at how art actually affected me. And, and, and what if one of my friends who was a chemist says, it's all nothing but canvas and paint. You know, that would be kind of, <laughs> that would be, that wouldn't be accurate, yeah. right? There's something more to what I'm observing. And so With I that. do think there's a sense in which we can know things that can't be reducible to, um, you know, a formulation or even uh, propositions. Yeah, and that question is very interesting uh, to me, uh, particularly um, I grew up evangelical, very similar to, uh, it was, uh, actually I didn't grow up in evangelical, I grew up independent fundamental Baptist, and <laughs> became evangelical, moved kind of past even that, but the... Uh, <laughs> The um, uh, to your for if you your chemist friend said that you know, um, and this was my experience as a kid reading literature and trying to piece it together with the theology and the little philosophy I was taught. I was like, well, you're not wrong, right? Like, he says this paper, and mm -hmm. but you're not right either. And that was the experience yeah. that I I continually had of like the of the irreducibility and how it was like. We weren't capturing something, right? Like we'd had this very narrow logic. Um, and I think that's uh, really, I think it's really important that we account for everything. Um, 
which I think is a big part of your argument in many ways. Uh, so I even, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, you, had, you sounded like you had something. Yeah, I was going to say that I think there's a lot going on when people hold beliefs, mm. right? So there, there's a, you know, we, 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 we seek out reasons, right, for why we believe things. Uh, but there's a kind of core sometimes of what we believe that it is almost inconceivable. We can't conceive of actually stumbling upon something that would that would actually show that it's wrong. Hmm. So, and I'm not sure that's irrational. Yeah. Right? So if, if let's say going back to the torturing children for fun, uh, I'm so <laughs> convinced that it's wrong to torture children for fun that in fact, I'm more convinced of that than I am of Einstein's second theory of relativity. And so I use this example in class to tell my students, you know, you're more, con you actually are more sure of a lot of moral propositions yeah. than you are of, of science, even though science is presented to us as sort of the definitive avenue by which we know things. I love uh, absurd and, and graphic examples in philosophy. Mm -hmm. So that, that, I'm sorry, it just always gets me when you say that. Like, yeah, like, yeah, I think everyone's like, okay, yeah, no. And it, it is interesting to notice how some people in conversation will want to hurry past that because they don't even, if they're so sure of it, that they don't even want to dwell on your argument because they don't want to talk about it because it bothers them so much, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it's what the Jonathan Haidt, the moral psychologist, calls dumbfounding. Yes. So uh, I've never heard that. I love that. So and 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 he says the reason why it happens, it happens mostly to what he calls weird people. What he means by weird is Western, educated. I forget what the I is. Uh, uh, Western educated, whatever I uh, rich. Democrats. And what he means by Democrats, what he means by Democrats is sort of, you know, liberal democracy. Yeah. It's not referring to the political party. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and, and so what he, what he says is that people who have, you know, grown up with this view of so culture and society think of the, at least moral questions as being reducible to matters of kind of consent, hmm. right? So the problem is when you bring up these kind of counterexamples, right? That that seem to touch on things that people believe are wrong, but since they can't be fully captured by the weird way of looking at things, uh, that they don't know what to do. And so, you know, I don't want to give you all. You know, he comes up with some pretty graphic examples. Sure, sure. Uh, so w one is the the case of the um, the guy in Germany who puts an ad in the paper for somebody that he can cannibalize. And, and the guy answers the ad and he shows up and he actually goes through with it. Wow. And so, and wait, so, was that real? So it's a real case. Oh. Yeah. You can look it yeah. up. And so, so height, you know, when, 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 uh, when this question is, is, is brought to the attention of college students that he's interviewing, uh, they try to come up with some way to account. Well, he didn't really consent. Maybe he was insane, you know, or, or they try to find some way to, and says, no, he was perfectly sane and he decided to do this. <laughs> and, oh, man. and, and so, so what, 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 what Haidt says is that the reason why people from more traditional cultures mm. don't find it problematic to say that's wrong is they also have, they, they bring to bear on this, not only, the, the ideas of fairness and justice and consent, but also 
ideas of sacredness and dignity mm-hmm. that and honor that in Western societies we tend to diminish a little bit. Not yeah. that we don't not that they're part of our moral palette, but they we don't we tend to accentuate the consent and contractual aspect of our moral lives. And so uh, by doing that though, we sometimes play down something that's really important. Mm. Right. Uh, and so uh, it's, it, 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 I, I highly recommend Haidt's uh, book, um, The Righteous Mind, where he talks about this in great detail mm. and explains why uh, we sometimes dif- have difficulty talking to each other uh, politically is that uh, we, 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 we have a um, we just have Generally, liberals and conservatives have different taste buds, <laughs> or what the or, or or not 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 that we have different taste buds, but that we have we tend to accentuate some of them more than others. And so, the example that that I've used in class is the, the debate about Colin Kaepernick mm. and his, uh, you know, wanting to kneel before the American flag as a protest against police brutality, and so people that are tend to be more conservative will see that as dishonoring the flag, right? And so those that are more, let's say, progressive say, no, uh, he's standing for justice. And it's not that conservatives don't believe in justice. And, and it's not that liberals or progressives don't believe in honoring the country, but they just they just put them in kind of different hierarchical order. Yeah. Hmm. Right? So it's like... Um, so, uh, you know, conservatives see the relationship between a citizen and his nation as similar to the relationship between parents and children. That is, you, you don't sort of, you may criticize your parents privately, but you don't do it in public, right? Whereas, whereas uh, you know, progressives may see it more as like, no, it's a question of justice. Right. If your parents have wronged you, you know, so it's a, you know, and again, it's not a question of that, that either side totally rejects the principles. Yeah. It's just kind of where they place them. And so, and so I think... It's more a question uh, of decorum, almost, than it is yeah. about... Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, sorry, do, were you, do you have something you wanted to finish with? Or? No, so it just, it just helped me to understand why I have certain, you know moral reflexes, things that sort of get under my skin, like instantly. Uh, so one of the, the, I think one of my flaws <laughs> is that, um, is that I will sometimes gravitate to positions because the wrong people hold the other one <laughs> or the opposite one. And so it's something I have to sort of wrestle with and and sort of question myself. Am I, am I gravitating to this view because the wrong people hold the opposite view. And, and I think it's a temptation. I mean, I think maybe everybody has, mm. uh, you know, some people are better at resisting this than others. I kind of admire the, the, the person that can resist it. I, I, I try, I try to be as, you know, I try to separate myself, uh, but it's, it's tough. And, uh, and I think part of it has to do with, uh, the idea of honor and and you know showing respect for your friends mm. um, 
and I think that's generally it's a good thing to hold, right? So um, I will not, let's say, publicly criticize my university, even though I may disagree with, let's say, once in a while, a thing or two said by the president. Uh, and if I have any disagreements, I'll privately make them known. I don't think, and and I don't know, again, sir, friends of mine would say that's a character flaw in me that I should, but I, I don't know. I think that, you know, in terms of weighing other goods, uh, you know, it may be, you know, the more prudent thing to do. Well, and there are cultural values at play here. Um, it's interesting to me. Uh, so my wife uh, comes from rural Alabama and I come from, uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, but originally my whole family's kind of from New England. And so mm. when we deal with conflict, right, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like, all right, this is the problem. We're dealing with the problem. We're done. And my wife wants yeah. to like, walk through the whole thing and just because we like talked about it doesn't mean it's done and uh yeah. you know so there's good to being done with things and putting it behind you and then there's also sometimes where sitting with it a little bit longer being a little more patient is really important and so uh yeah. even at the cultural and societal level you can have values that can lead lean uh to help in one way and hurt in others yeah yeah, I mean, you know, um, just this morning when I, you know, I mentioned earlier the the prospectus defense that I that I was chairing, uh, there was a part of our discussion with the student. Uh, one of my colleagues brought up because we should have um, just culture war theory. So you know, if you're with ju- you know, there's just war theory, and I just thought that's really clever. I said I turned to my colleague. I said. That's an article. I think I may steal that idea. Yeah. That's a so so his his thinking was this that in just war theory, you know, aggression against a uh, adversary is is only justified if the the only type of response you can make is proportionate response. So mm. you know, somebody attacks you, you can resist the attack or the invasion, but you can't like go to that other country and start killing innocent people because that's disproportionate. Hmm. That's a kind of simple example. That's part of just war theory. But think about the way in which, let's say, somebody, let's say, says something awkwardly on Twitter and 100,000 people want the guy fired for his job. Right. Now, that's disproportionate, right? So so you, so the, so I thought, you know, when, when my colleague brought this up, I thought, that's really a, that's a great, that's a, that's an article right there. I mean, kind of saying maybe we should, you know, apply just war theory to how we handle each other on social media, <laughs> right, right, right. So somebody, let's say, you know, says something like slightly off color, they yeah. didn't mean it, they just, you know, they only have so many characters and so they try to shorten it up and it comes across maybe a slightly offensive and the person apologizes, okay, then proportionate it's been resolved. We should just move on, right? On the other hand, if somebody, let's say, gets on social media and defames somebody um, and they apologize, maybe some kind of legal action is justified, maybe because the reputation has been harmed. Yeah. So so proportionate response there would be a lawsuit. Right. Uh, so maybe we should, you know, uh, kind of inculcate people in... Uh, you know, appropriate response kind of, to yeah. that's right so ju- just culture war theory yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry the, the... so a professor let's say a professor yeah. tweets something that um is critical of let's say um you know 
trans theory or critical race theory and, uh, you know, you know, 300 students call for the professor to be, to resign or be punished, that's disproportionate, right? He's a professor or she's a professor that's consistent with academic freedom. Voice your disagreement and then that's it, right? I mean, so the proportionate yeah. response would be just voicing your disagreement and maybe uh, having a, a panel discussion at the university, but it shouldn't be firing the person, right? That's disproportionate. And uh, you, right, given the like, if you have for that example, you have because uh, these arguments need to happen, right? You have someone taking an argumentative stance versus someone making personal attacks against somebody who's part of that, and then they double down on that, and then you're like, "Well, yeah, okay, like you didn't you didn't apologize, you like <laughs> you're yeah. like you're it, this has nothing to do with academic freedom. You're just attacking this person, yeah. right? And that's where yeah, personal yeah, yeah personal attacks are different, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, and even then, if somebody. Uh, so I've had a couple of, uh, I had one tweet uh, that I deleted. I can't tell you what it was, but I deleted it within one second. And I'm so glad I did. Uh, it was, I, I shared the idea with one of my colleagues. He said, that is like the greatest tweet ever, but you can't tweet it. I go, yeah, you're right. Uh, and it was a personal attack and it was extremely funny, but I I'm glad I didn't tweet it. That is the problem uh, with Twitter, right? It's so easy yeah. to reach so many people. <laughs> So, so well, quickly. Yeah. Well, there was one, uh, the, the, uh, that I've, I've since I delete my, I haven't been on Twitter for a month. I've actually quit social media since the beginning of January, uh, because I've got a lot of work and I'm, I'm, it's great. Uh, <laughs> but, but there was a, 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 during the middle of COVID, uh, the comedian Amy Schumer sent out a tweet saying, or her, her publicist sent out a tweet that said that about a new comedy she was doing that she was, she had comedy 19. And so I retweeted it and said, yeah, but she's asymptomatic. <laughs> and, and, and it got, I think got retweeted like 10,000 times. It was like, by oh, far my, and so that was one of those ones. Yeah. That was kind of playing. It was fun. Right. You know, it was playful you know, right. kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, and that's also – and the interesting thing about social media is the way that um, academic statements, uh, humor for fun, and personal attacks get all kind of blended in, and there's no tone, and it's so short, right? Like, I think, like, your example is obviously, like, in fun, and that's funny, like, even if yeah. it is a bit biting, but it's, like – uh, it's so interesting to see how like something that's said with this specific audience in mind just travels so quickly over here and becomes something totally different. Um, but that's, yeah, that's really fascinating. Before we get too uh, far out, um, I yes. did want to come back and I, I would love to hear you kind of give a, a basic breakdown for our listeners um, of your disagreement with Steven Pinkner's, uh, with Steven Pinkner on human dignity. Because I think that was okay. a really good example of what you're talking about, you know, even as we talk about irreducibility. And I think most people will see your argument because most people just inherently in our culture, you know, you want to talk about like that, uh, they, they agree with human dignity, right? That's kind of a, a bedrock of our society. So, um, it's, you know, I just use the word squishy and bedrock at the same time, but uh, it's a squishy bedrock. We'll, we'll go with that. So if you could walk me through that, I'd love that. Sure. Yeah, so in 2008, Steven Pinker published this article in the New Republic called The Stupidity of Dignity. And by the way, Steven Pinker is a 
Harvard University psychologist who is a kind of public intellectual. I actually enjoy listening to him. Mm. He's, you know, I, I probably, he's one of these thinkers that I, I, I'll tell my students, I agree with him 46% of the time. You know, he's like not somebody I totally disagree right. with, but I just, I like, I really like people like him in the sense that he's willing to just say stuff yes. and get, get the conversation going. Right. And I think society's better for having people like Steven Pinker. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, though, he writes this piece called The Stupidity of Dignity, and it's a critical analysis of the President's Bioethics Commission mm. that had been chaired by Leon Cass. Leon Cass, recently retired uh, professor at the University of Chicago. He's an MD who has written some really wonderful work on medical ethics mm. and... Uh, published a couple of years ago a, com a, a commentary in the book of Genesis. Uh, he's just one of these guys that is just, you know, he's he, he gets his graduate degree in one area, but then has just got this, um, uh, what's the right term? Um, uh, incredibly ravenous intellect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he just he just loves learning. And Some so people would say tolerance for pain, but yes, ravenous intellect. That's right, I mean, <laughs> Just, just, you know, he's just hungry and yeah. he's just, and you can tell he's also got a, a way with words. And so his whole, his whole thing when he was appointed by President George W. Bush was to advance the idea of human dignity as central to medical ethics. Mm. And it is different from the more kind of mainstream um, view, which is sometimes called principalism, that, that medical ethics is... Uh, when we're engaging in medical ethical judgments, we have to uh, appeal to four basic principles, uh, autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and justice. Mm. That's sort of central. And there's a kind of um, almost legalistic way of looking at medical ethics. And uh, Cass doesn't think that that is wrong necessarily, but what he's saying is that that patients can actually make autonomous choices that violate human dignity. Mm. You know, supposing, you know, a patient walks into a doctor's office and says, you know, I just want both my arms um, amputated and replaced with prosthetics. Why? Because I don't think that I should have arms. And this is actually, things like this have happened. Right. You know. Well, and, that's and it so, goes back to the cannibal. Uh, that's yes, right. Yeah. So if, if let's say, um, you just want to reduce, you know, the, the role of physician as a kind of um, technician that is there to simply meet the subjective needs of patients, rather than thinking of medicine as a profession at a particular end to it, um, you know, you have to sort of resist this, this principalism. It, by the way, the, the term principalism comes from a book called The Principles of Biomedical Ethics that was authored by uh, two, uh, uh, well, actually one philosopher and one religious studies professor, Tom Beecham and uh, James Childress, who University of Virginia and Beecham was at uh, Georgetown. And it's a highly influential book in medical ethics. Uh, I think there's a lot of good in it. I've, I've been critical of it, as Cass has, uh, but I do think there's some many there's many wonderful things in the book. I think that Beecham and Childress were instrumental in getting us to think about medical ethics in ways that no one had even envisioned prior to that book. 
Um, but Cass. Sorry to interrupt. I yeah. just wanted to make sure. Who, what was the name of the gentleman who was appointed by George W. Bush? Oh, Leon Cass, K-A-S-S. So, um, so Pinker testified before the uh, Bioethics Commission or committee, I forget the exact title, and uh, apparently he and the members of the committee had a uh, less than amiable exchange. <laughs> and so it was soon after that that, Cap that Pinker publishes his piece in the New Republic, and he goes after the idea of human dignity, he says it's squishy, it's subjective, uh, we don't need dignity. All we need is um, autonomy. Yeah. That's it. You know, patient autonomy. And so in my chapter, uh, in Taking Rights Seriously, I, I'm critical of, of, of Pinker. And what I say is that, that there are many problems with deducing mm -hmm. uh, patient choices to mere autonomy. And... And one example I've already alluded to, this idea that uh, that a patient can actually choose things that are not consistent with their own dignity. Yeah. Right now, I, you know, going all the way back to common law, patients do have the choice to reject uh, medical treatment if they so choose. And that has to do with just a fundamental right that people have to not be assaulted. Right. Right. So so that but that's different from thinking of the role of the physician is simply to meet the needs or the desires of whatever a patient wants. Uh, and so the, one of the illustrations I use in the article is, you know, imagine if we had discovered that that there was a, a group of, 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 let's say, people that were victims of the Holocaust mm. that actually chose it. Mm. I mean, we wouldn't think, and supposing they, they, they came to, for some bizarre reason, to believe Hitler's rhetoric about themselves, and they said, yeah, Hitler was right, and so they willingly walked to the gas chambers. I mean, we would, we would think that that was, we wouldn't say, well, that were just, they were just exercising their autonomy. We would say that, that they just, th their beliefs about themselves was, was undignified. Mm. Right. I mean, we, we may want to tell a different story and say that they maybe were brainwashed or something, but we would we would at some point have to come to the conclusion that people can make mistakes about their own value and worth yeah. and that medicine, whether it's psychiatry or some other specialty in medicine, has a role to try to work with people to see themselves in a better light. Well, and. Forgive me for interrupting here, but it definitely brings to mind um, some of Foucault's point in History of Madness that, uh, you know, over time, what our culture looks at, you know, like people thought Van Gogh was crazy. Now they think he's uh, now they think he's a genius. Right. And so we see like that, you know, he talks in terms of geniuses and how that flirts with madness. Um, because they see things that our culture doesn't see. But this has happened with medical stuff all the time where uh, we're literally arguing and uh, it's a cop out, I think, to say, well, if someone is violating, you know, it's like if uh, if it doesn't fit under autonomy, that's because uh, and it's wrong. That's because they're insane. Right. And that's what ends up happening <laughs> yeah. is you have people who just have mistaken beliefs and we just want to lump that under insanity just as a way of like it's too we're, we're reducing to the point where like 
things are spilling out of the boxes we're putting them in, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that's exactly, yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, in, in a sense, I mean, I think Pinker is not entirely wrong that, that, that dignity, the idea of human dignity can't be precisely defined. And so a point that I make in the chapter is that I don't think you can isolate human dignity from a moral tradition. Hmm. So I think the idea of, of human dignity that, that sort of is generally held by thinkers, it's not a coincidence that you'll find most of the folks that embrace this idea of human dignity as central to medical ethics are either serious Jews or Christians hmm. or Muslims or let's say secular thinkers that have a that aren't sort of strict materialists. Mm -hmm. So someone like the late Ronald Dworkin mm -hmm. uh, would be among them. Uh, and Dworkin's last book called Religion Without God uh, wants to distance himself from the kind of Richard Dawkins types. Uh, he himself was an atheist, but he thinks that this kind of reductionism doesn't truly capture the way our lives actually are conducted. Uh, so, so yeah, the, there's... Uh, yeah, so so I do think that it, that you can't have um, the idea of human dignity unless it's in some way connected to a philosophical or theological tradition mm. that is thick. Yeah. So yeah. for for Christians and, and, and Jews, it's the image of God, right? Uh, for um, if you you know read for example some medieval thinkers when they're talking about what distinguishes human beings from other creatures it's our capacity to be rational but that doesn't mean it in a kind of technical uh, kind of calculating sense it means our ability to actually encounter the transcendent and that's something that uh, human beings have even when they are suffering from disabilities mm. or even when they're not fully functioning yeah. And so I think you find this intuition in the rise of, of what is called disability studies, which is a new movement within philosophy and ethics it's risen in the past decade or so, where you have uh, philosophers, many of whom are not, let's say, religious, but are uneasy with the kind of, kind of rationalistic, autonomous approach to medical ethics, which they see as dangerous to people with disabilities, because a lot of people with disabilities can't act autonomously, mm. you know, or some, you know, it's not, you know, obviously lots do, but uh, some don't, right? There are people that are maybe have suffering from Alzheimer's or maybe other sorts of cognitive ailments. Yeah. And to think that they're sort of subhuman, uh, there are people in disability studies say that that is the logical conclusion to that kind of rationalistic view of autonomy. And we have to resist that. Mm. So it's interesting how in medical ethics there are what I you know we would call strange bedfellows, right? People yeah. that ordinarily wouldn't align themselves, but find themselves kind of in strange agreement with each other, right? So let's say more conventional, traditional religious believers find themselves aligned with you know non-religious people who are uneasy with this kind of strong rationalism. Yeah. Uh, in medical ethics. Yeah, I actually had down to ask you about like there were two areas where uh, you seem to have some convergence with one, like postmodern critiques of modern secular, uh, secularism, right? Like the idea, mm -hmm. um, even uh, when you talk about critical race theory, 
not that uh, I just had Dr. Lewis Gordon on, and he was talking about the way that the current system often uh, relies on numbers over oral and lived experience to hide mm -hmm. certain things, right? Um, yeah. And one of the example that he gave was when he, you know, he grew up in the Bronx. He had uh, several like his family members told him all the time about their encounters with police brutality. But when he looked at the numbers, they were shockingly low. But of course, the numbers were based on conviction, not on reports. And they were yeah. determined by the police. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, it means one is right over the other, but it certainly like it calls into question, like when the police are doing the reporting on themselves, right? Like, uh, but yeah. we want to put those numbers over uh, oral and lived experience. Um, and so it, it reminds me kind of of what you're talking about. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's it's something that uh, you know, I grew up, I was born in Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, I didn't grow up there. I, I, my parents moved to Las Vegas when I was a kid, but my, my mom's family is from Sicily and Naples. Mm. And, uh, my two great grandfathers on my mother's side, uh, actually all four great grandparents were immigrants and her father was as well. He was born in Naples. Uh, but you know, we heard stories, uh, you know, my, my, my great aunts and uncles would talk about the kind of discrimination that Italian Americans faced. My, one of my great grandfathers actually shot in the back by police wow. in, in 1920. Uh, and I have the death certificate that actually says it on it. And, uh, I've been, you know, tempted, uh, in a good way to kind of investigate it. Like what, What's the report look like? Right, uh, right. And, you know, I had heard this from my grandmother and didn't realize. I mean, I just, I didn't know whether she was right or not. I mean, yeah. you know, I, there was no reason for her diet, but, you know, and I, sure enough, uh, when I was doing genealogical research on my family, it was there. Hmm. And so I wonder what happened. Uh, and it just said that he, he was a peddler. Uh, I don't know, you know, technically that, pro I don't know what that meant. Right. Maybe he was, but apparently, you know, my vision is he was accused of stealing something, ran away and was shot in the back. Hmm. I, and, and, and so my grandmother lost her dad wow. when she was seven. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's just, you know, so yeah, so that, that was recorded. Right. But that had an impact upon you know, how my grandma grew up. Yeah. And which right? automatically leads to how your mom and even you have grown up. Like that gets passed down. Yeah. So I didn't know now my, yeah. So I didn't know. I only knew, uh, one of my great grandparents, his, uh, his wife, uh, Vincenza Domino. Uh, she died when I was 19, but I never, I didn't know. I didn't know him. Mm. Right. His name was Giuseppe yeah. Domino. Wow. Uh, and yeah, so it's, a. Uh, yeah, those things, uh, uh, you know, I, and it's interesting, I, I took, when I was in grad school, or not grad school, when I was in law school, I actually took an entire course on, called Alternative, uh, uh, what is it, it's called, um, what is it called non-conventional? It was uh, non-traditional aspects of the law. Uh, and it, I studied critical race theory, critical legal studies, and feminist jurisprudence, and this was 20 years ago, and it was before any of this became sort of, you know, publicly controversial. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to hold the view. I mean, I, I am critical of, of those, those schools of thought. However, I do think that they are not without merit. Uh, 
you know, that there is a lot to learn from, from those schools of thought. And I think you, you, you've alluded to it already, that there are aspects of our lives out of experience that some people don't understand. And uh, I'll give you one that's, it's, it may sound like a weird one, but it's a political one. Um, mm. I, I, am, I am not politically progressive. I, I tend to be you know, slightly right of center in my politics, and I've been that way for quite some time. Uh, so when I got my first job at, at UNLV, uh, one of my colleagues in the political science department was running for state senate, and we were. She wasn't. She was being talked about at this party. Hmm. Uh, it was a birthday party for one of my colleagues, and so a couple of us were just talking about the election. And one of them turned to me and said, "Oh, did you vote for Dina in the primary?" And I said, "I I couldn't." And they said, "Well, why couldn't you? Aren't you registered?" And I said, "No, I am registered to vote." Well, what do you mean you couldn't? Were you like, did you miss the... So it didn't occur to them that I was a Republican. Right, right. In other words, it's, it's a, so, it's a fair, the, 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 so that, that, that I couldn't because I couldn't vote in the Democratic primary. Right. And so I actually thought about that, you know, when, when, I, was, when I was first studying, um, you know, kind of critical race theory stuff, I, in order for me to help myself understand it, I actually tried to think of examples of my own experience that helped illuminate. And that was actually one that helped, Yeah, you know, that the, the sort of the assumptions that people make. And I remember I got to the point where one of my colleagues, one of my colleagues realized it and he kind of got this kind of look of embarrassment. And I said, no, it's okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, to, to, today things are a, a lot different in terms of the political makeup of the Academy. But, uh, but that was a, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, it's not, I, I think there are things, you know, that we, you're, I think you're right, that you just simply can't appeal to the numbers, that there are, uh, there are ways in which we just make assumptions about the world that, that are may, maybe perfectly innocent, but we should be open to correction. Yeah, yeah, that are, and you know, we keep coming back to, to that word reductionist, but I think it's, it's very helpful. Uh, the last one, and I think this is a good thing to end on, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, uh, Especially as we become a more globalized society, uh, your critique here of kind of this distinction between philosophy and religion, I think is really interesting in terms of like, uh, and I'm wading in deep waters that I don't fully understand here. This is not something I'm an expert in, but when you look at other cultures, they often don't distinguish between philosophy and religion the same way, way that we do. And when you talk about a, mo a moral tradition, that's a more, you know, when you talk about Confucianism or you talk about Buddhism, Hinduism, these have these philosophical sides and these theological sides in, that, in ways that don't easily correspond. And if we're going to have these global discussions, like we have to be able to account for and deal with our own division between philosophy and theology. Do you think that's a fair assessment? What are your thoughts on that? I think I think that's a that's a that's a very good observation. I, I like to think of it in terms of in the West, we've had this long tradition of church and state separation, mm -hmm. right? Comes out of I mean, we've it's always been there even when uh, Europe was dominated by the Christian faith, there was always a kind of rivalry between uh, you know, the princes and the kings and the bishops, right? They they understood there were different jurisdictions. Yeah. Uh there are a lot of cultures globally that don't have that, mm. right? It, it, and so if you go to like pre, 
Christian, if you go back to, let's say, the, um, you know, the Greek philosophers, when Aristotle and Plato are writing, right, the, the, the idea that religious ideas are, can somehow be totally disentangled from the culture and society mm. would have seemed almost absurd to them. Mm. And so I think we have to, when we're having, uh, you know, discussions and dialogues with, with folks from other backgrounds, we shouldn't think, oh, this model that we have should be the kind of model for every society. Mm. I mean, there's, uh, you know, maybe, I mean, I remember when the, when the uh, right after 9-11, uh, you know, there were several articles published uh, you know, online by scholars across the political spectrum suggesting that Islam should embrace a kind of post-Reformation Western view of church and state or mosque and state. And, you know, whether that, you know, is even possible, I don't know. I'm not a scholar of Islam. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it, there, there is this sense of, uh, you know, trying to sort of jerry-rig <laughs> other societies into our model mm. uh, is unwise. And I think that that doesn't mean that that they can't, appropriate or learn from us and we can't learn from them. I mean, there's obviously there's that kind of stuff you can't regulate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just the way the world is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, if you were to go to, let's say, uh, you know, if you were to talk to someone from, from, from China and, and ask them, you know, a question that, assume this kind of division between religion and culture, they, they would find it almost incomprehensible. Yeah. Uh, it's not a way that, that, that most people have thought. And I wonder, too, whether we've always, at least in the United States, have had a kind of informal uh, kind of uh, theological tradition. Mm. I mean, a kind of... Um, kind of a you referenced quasi the moral tradition yeah. earlier, right? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, when you find, for example, you know, in the, the early Republic of the United States, this, you know, even though there was obviously great diversity of, of, of theological traditions, the diversity wasn't all that great, right? right? So people were divided between Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists, and there were a few Catholics and a few Jewish citizens. Uh, but still, there was this kind of common theism. Right. right? Even the, and, even the so, crazy ones, so to say, were deists, right? Yeah, so and so the ones that were the most difficult were like the Quakers and the Mennonites, yeah. right? Because they were pacifists, and but and we and even that they were tough because we had to sort of find ways to get them as part of society, and we we managed that. But as you know, time has has, has developed, or has the country? I mean, with the diversity now is even deeper, mm -hmm. right? So the divisions now are are not over these theological differences about, let's say, baptism and ecclesiology and maybe just war. Now it's over, like, the nature of man. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right, so, I mean, that's, so I'm not, I mean, there's a question about whether, you know, kind of conventional liberalism can handle that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any last words? Uh, is there, like, a, a, a one solid takeaway? Uh, uh, besides read your book and, you know, to fully grasp your arguments, you walk through several important topics. But um, which, by the way, I love the titles of your book. 
I don't know how much effort you put into them, but it, <laughs> like if that's just something you just come up with, but taking right seriously um, and then uh, never doubt Thomas. I, I got a good chuckle out of those. So one, congratulations. They're great titles. But <laughs> is there is there a, uh, something you can leave uh, our listeners with? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to religious conflict, mm. uh, I, I I think it's important to sort of, especially if, if you're, let's say, skeptical of religion, uh, kind of do yourself a favor. I mean, we're all kind of skeptical to some religion that's not ours. <laughs> right, right. So even right. if you're, so, I mean, to sort of take, take the time to try to understand why people believe what they believe. I mean, uh, I mean, really smart people believe this stuff. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, you may, like, I'm not, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic. Uh, I have friends that are Protestants. I used to be a Protestant, but I have great respect for people that are, right? I, I don't think Protestantism is right, but I understand why someone would be one. Right, right. right. I think it's not an, unre- and so I think we have to kind of, and we have to cultivate that in ourselves. Mm. It's a habit that we have to, you know, and I think for that reason, it's it's a good idea uh, to, you know, talk to people mm. and not just rely on, you know, what you see on social media. It's, mm. uh, uh, and it's tough because we do kind of create our own epistemic bubbles, right? Where we, we don't allow, you know, our own, you know, we like to hear things that, tickle our ears yeah absolutely uh, great summary thank you dr beckwith uh to our listeners if you enjoyed the conversation please uh like and share it subscribe so that other people can uh be a part of this conversation as well and uh just again thank you thank you